welcome to episode 37 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined with Kyle Klachenko. And today, our guest is Mike Malloy of M2 Performance Nutrition. And Mike, thank, first, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, we haven't really had someone working with high-level athletes, namely in the sport of CrossFit, come on the show. So this will be our, our first for our viewers. Great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, so uh, Mike, you are not new to this field of nutritional sciences, namely uh, nutritional coaching, uh, especially from a distance, as that seems to be quite popular nowadays, as there are many companies that offer nutritional services uh, from afar. Uh, You've been doing this since 2008, if I'm not mistaken, and you have uh, advanced degrees um, in immunology and microbiology, so not necessarily in, uh, in nutritional-related sciences directly, but I'd love to hear how things have evolved, if at all, since 2008 for you and your application of or understanding of these foundational principles that make uh, your business successful, uh, and then also how your education in immunology and, and uh, microbiology have made you more perceptive and better at what you do? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the the core nutritional values uh, really haven't changed dramatically from 2008 as it relates to sort of, you know, what's best for people, but certainly like my application of them has, Um, you know, the the core principles are always going to be, you know, eat a micronutrient and dense diet and apply the appropriate, you know, calorie intake for the the goals that you're going after. If that's performance, if that's body composition, if that's, you know, just feeling healthy, um, you know, those, those things have been re- pretty well set in stone, I think 80% of the time. And of course there's going to be new fads that kind of come and go. Um, but you know, the, what's going to work best for most people hasn't dramatically changed too, too much. Um, on the, you know, on the educational side, like you said, like my background's in immunology, really. Um, and certainly I worked a lot on gut health over the years, which does have a connection to nutrition. But um, really, I'd say what my PhD taught me is sort of like how to think, um, how to solve problems, um, and then, you know, just really kind of how to sift through the the thousands and thousands of papers that are out there and figure out, you know, what's a good study and what's, you know, what's garbage. Um, and there's certainly a lot of garbage research that's going on in the world of nutrition. That's for sure. At any time, did you use your PhD to profess in those fields at all? To profess, like to to do, uh, like as a as a professor or in any lecture setting, like any educational settings before uh, the business. Yeah, so I mean, for you know, I did a lot of you know basic uh, research, really doing you know at the bench studies for you know the better part of a decade, um, and. Outside of that, I did do some teaching here and there, but nothing dramatic. You know, it was really more about uh, generating primary studies that people would then, you know, review, give feedback, and eventually we would try to publish. That was really sort of my educational career there before uh, a stint in the the biotech world, uh, trying to work with a really small company to design new drugs for things like autoimmune disease and cancer. And the reason I ask is twofold. Is one, because I really just think that having a foundational it's not really it's much more foundational but having an advanced understanding of some of the sciences at play can cannot be replaced and obviously you put in so much effort and time into <laughs> developing that uh right. 
that understanding. But then the reason I asked about uh, if you had professed, I think you had mentioned that your PhD had made you better able to sift through things that perhaps were uh, kind of hocus pocus and, and also help you understand why the things that are effective are working on, on that scientific level. Also, and, and I think, especially with nutrition, it can be hard because people seem similar to exercise uh, regimens that it's a very personal thing, right? And and people uh, get very defensive mm-hmm. about what they believe in so that if someone can communicate to them with, uh, of course, it's just like a, an empathetic human being, of course, but with just a good su- sound science, it, it sounds like you'd have the context to work with just about anyone and, and maybe ease them into things that they're not familiar with or have struggled with in the past. No, that's absolutely true. You know, uh, the ability to kind of provide data uh, to support the arguments for the things that you're asking people to do, you know, is, is, is game changing. You know, um, I always tell people like, you should always be willing to ask me or any coach that you work with. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And yeah. They're not willing to give you an answer. You should run as fast as you can from them. You know, yeah. um, there needs to be explanations. There needs to be reason and logic behind uh, everything that we're trying. Do you know what I mean? For sure. And I think one of the, um, while the evidence-based field is growing, and I think with any form of progress, there's also a sense of challenge because while the evidence-based field is growing and people truly are taking their personal experiences with the latest science to, to get results, there's also like this science kickback. Like you'll hear like, well, the science hasn't caught up and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like those people are kind of waiting for their confirmation biases. But if you can, I think, maybe speak to them in a way that uh, – meets them where they are and then allows for the success that would that at least i think that's what an evidence-based approach has allowed us to do and, and maybe you can even give uh an example of what you found to be perhaps most challenging in terms of beliefs that were not quite correct or behaviors uh, that you were able to perhaps uh, um, best influence given your your personal experience and your educational experience yeah um, definitely you're going to run up against some people that have sort of a preconceived notion of how, how they should be, you know, uh, eating or sleeping or managing their stress and things of that nature. And I think that's probably, you know, um, like one of the bigger obstacles that we deal with is trying to help people get past that, you know, so probably the most obvious one that comes to mind is sort of, a uh, a wide plaguing fear of carbohydrates, <laughs> um, in the, the CrossFit world, I think. You know, um, that's one bias that we're constantly striving to, to work against with people, you know, um, especially women, you know, so there's the, the research out there shows that women are especially sensitive to low carbohydrate diets, uh, as it relates to their thyroid health. And so for those of the, in your audience that don't know, the thyroid is a gland that sits sort of in your, your neck region, um, that sort of responsible, uh, in a very basic level to kind of controlling your metabolism and, if you put yourself into a low carbohydrate diet, what's been shown is that the thyroid gland will basically decrease its functionality. Uh, it'll decrease its output of the hormones that it produces to sort of tell your body to operate as best as it possibly can. And it does this essentially as a survival mechanism, right? So if, you're, if your food intake is low, then your body really shouldn't be operating at 100% if it's trying to survive for as long as possible. Um, but of course, people don't necessarily know these things. And so they just hear, you know, uh, carbs make you fat. 
And it's like, well, no, carbs plus no exercise may make you fat, right? Um, so that's just one example where we're able to sit down, use basic biology and research on thyroid health as it relates to, you know, higher carb, medium carb, and low carb diets and help to educate people that, hey, you know, this is, this is the right path forward for your goals and your overall health. Have you found that uh, kind of carb phobia going away? Because you work primarily with CrossFit athletes, correct? Correct. Have you found that that carb phobia has kind of started to go away? I know probably back when you began in 2008, uh, it was at its highest. But um, as the sports advanced, I feel though at least many of the top athletes have finally started to make that switch. Yeah, um, it's starting to go away for sure. So, you know, just thinking about the the time that I've been coaching and, you know, the thousands of sort of intake forms that we see where people kind of tell us what they have been eating, um, it's getting better for sure. You know, I think there was a, a large, you know, movement within the CrossFit community around like the paleo diet. And, mm-hmm. you know, while certain people certainly would never tell you that, you know, um, that you have to be low carb on paleo. It just sort of happened over time. And so getting people to move away from that approach into something a little bit more um, sustainable has definitely been a process, but we are, we are making progress. You know Um, you can stay quote paleo and then put in a bunch of uh, white rice. You can put stay paleo and do some oatmeal or, you know, a lot of regular potatoes and things of that nature and still see a lot of great progress while maintaining your overall health through eating a really micronutrient dense diet. You know, I think that's sort of uh, a good example of sort of like the segue that we've been able to make with people over the last decade or so. Um, so it, carbs seem to be in terms of uh, the more um, like a misconception, we'd say that, that clients have um, when, when clients on board with you, are there certain um, behaviors that are, are challenging where you find that you are, because it, you know, I think we would in, in a further discussion, find out that we encounter similar things throughout the day where we don't really work. We don't work with nutrition, but with performance, you end up wearing many hats, right? Like kind of the, first and foremost, you're, you're there to help make the performance better or the nutrition better. But in wearing these many hats, there's, like the the psychological uh, and the, or maybe like this larger psychosocial in that plays part. Um, have you found that to be a challenging aspect, if at all, in working with um, CrossFitters uh, with their nutrition? Yeah, I mean, challenging. No, um, a huge part of the job. Yes. So you know, re- the reality of the situation is that if you're going to be involved with coaching, uh, and if you're going to be involved with nutrition coaching in particular, I think. Like at least 50% of your job is to be a therapist to some extent, um, a psychologist or something along those lines, you know, and the reason why it's so important for us to kind of accept that and be willing to work with it is that, you know, we're not, we're not robots. We don't exist in isolation, you know? Um, so from just from a nutritional point of view, if I've got a client who's stressed, you know, well, one, they're more, they're more likely to deviate from their plan. Um, you know, stress can often lead to either binge eating, you know, trying to, really, um, you know, go hard after calories for, for really, uh, biological reasons, or, you know, it can shut down hunger. It can shut down appetite completely. And so if we don't can gain control of that from either perspective, it could be a problem for us. Um, you know, it's, it's something that we deal with every day as a nutrition coach, sort of 
putting on a different hat, not just worrying about numbers, but worrying about the person behind the numbers. I think, think that's what kind of separates like, you know, decent nutrition coaching from really great nutrition coaching is uh, taking that personal aspect into a, into play when you work with a client, work with an athlete for sure. So for instance, if someone say, says they're, they're trying to bulk and you might have their carbs at a, a certain level, um, you know, carbs fuel performance quite well, uh, especially yeah. for something like CrossFit performance too, for games athletes and regional athletes, especially. Um, but if, if someone wasn't getting along with that or it wasn't working for their lifestyle, you'd be accommodating perhaps to making it work for them. And I, I don't know if maybe even that topic could lead to like a, uh, a discussion of, uh, these, these higher carb versus higher fat trends. A, lo- a lot of people I know, uh, have heard keto and, and, and understand what that all means, but are you guys locked into writing for specific micro uh, macronutrients and having people follow them or is part of that art of coaching involving what works for their psychology and what is most practical? Yeah. I mean, to some extent their the psychology of what they want to do needs to line up with their goals, but we, we definitely work within, you know, sort of within each client. Right. So, you know, I pride, I pride what we do at M2 as sort of being, you know, we'll, we'll adapt to the client's needs as opposed to trying to shove them into, into our model or our mode, you know? So, you know, maybe a good example um, would be someone who comes to us and they say, you know, Hey, for, for moral or ethical reasons, I want to maintain a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle, you know? And then we say, okay, you know, we're going to build out a macro plan for this person, realistically getting them to eat something in the range of, uh, you know, one gram per pound of desired body weight, in protein might be a bit more challenging than it would for somebody on a, you know, an omnivore diet. And so we'll, we're willing to make that a, that modification to their plan to, you know, work within their own, their own game plan. Um, you, you know, their own morals, their own ethics in that situation as it relates to sort of like a higher fat versus higher carb diet, you know, that's going to be again, very individual to individual specific with athletes, you know, we've, what I'll often do is let athletes try it and I'll, you know, I'll say, Hey, you know, give, give my way a try for a month, you know, and if you don't like it, then we can go back to what you want to try and we'll work within your boundaries of wanting to eat a higher fat, lower carb diet. Typically that ends up working out pretty well. Um, there are exceptions to that rule. So not so much with women, but more with men. Every once in a while, you will find an athlete that does appear to be, you know, happier or, um, maybe in their mind performing better. And, you know, if they're convinced that it works better for them, then that's a huge, a huge thing that you can ignore to run on a high fat diet, you know? Um, but typically when we get people off of the high fat and into the hard carb, high carb diets, their sleep improves, their recovery times improve, um, their ability to, to push harder through um, more of the like glycolytic aspects of the, the sport of CrossFit all improves as well. So, you know, um, we, we, we are willing to work within the bounds of the athlete, but we're not afraid to push them to say, Hey, like you should give it a try our way. And at the end of the day, like if you don't feel better then we'll, we'll adapt and we'll find the, a place where we can all be happy. So, uh, speaking more to the, maybe the actual numbers or and where you start people. And I know that it's going to be a balance of, uh, you'll, you'll set something and see how they react to it and, and adjust from there. Uh, but maybe starting with calories, what's kind of your approach to uh, where you'll start someone calorie-wise? And then I guess maybe another question on that would be, do you find more often that people uh, are under-eating um, based on their perform- their, or their activity level and such? 
Yeah. Um, so the second question is easier to answer than the first one, probably. Yeah. So we definitely find that people come to us under eating, you know, whether they're coming from other nutrition programming or just sort of like eating on their own. And now they're learning to track for the first time. Most of your sort of CrossFit athletes that are coming to us are under eating. Now I'm not sitting here that, that telling you that the reason that most, you know, uh, North Americans are overweight is because they're under eating. That's, that's, that's crazy. That would not be the case. Um, but you know, with athlete athletes, yeah, we find that typically they're under eating for the goals that they have and the amount of volume of training that they're doing. I would say something in the order of 80% of men and 85 to 90% of women are under eating. Um, as it relates to setting calories as a sort of a baseline goal, you know, we use a pretty straightforward uh, formula that was adapted from a really great nutrition coach uh, named Alan Aragon, who's kind of famous in the bodybuilding community, um, which basically takes into account sort of a, a desired or a goal body weight or maybe a competition body weight that you have in mind, and then an activity multiplier, which, you know, essentially kind of encompasses what you're doing in the gym, you know, what you're doing for work and how active you are, you know, outside of the gym as well. So, you know, all of all of those things we we take into account to try to generate an idea of how much activity is a person doing day to day. Um, and then from there, we we just listen to biofeedback, right? So, you know, if I'm working with one of you guys and it's been two weeks on the program, so now I'm going to be asking, so, hey, Kyle, you know, how's your sleep been uh, since we adjusted your macros? How's your hunger level? What are you feeling like in the gym? Um, you know, are you hitting a 2 p.m. afternoon lull? Um, are you having to caffeinate more or less? Like we're going to ask a ton of questions to sort of figure out like what was our initial formula, our initial macro or calorie goal appropriate, or were we way off base and we need to make adjustments, you know? And over time asking those questions, we can really dial into, you know, what's best for you and really figure out, you know, um, what your needs are. So it sounds like the population you work with, largely athletes driven to improve performance namely CrossFit performance, I, I think it's of that kind of like really dedicated, not all in mentality, but they're certainly willing to, to go that extra mile. These aren't, aren't um, perhaps recreational uh, um, fitness enthusiasts who are perhaps getting into things for the first time. Right. Uh, do you find that tracking is coming easy for these clients because of their certain or their particular goals and, and uh, their their drive? Or are there some clients that you have that you find other ways to improve their, their performance via nutrition or their aesthetics via nutrition without necessarily tracking the, uh, the breakdown of their food via the macronutrients? Yeah, that's a great question. So First, I'll just say, so like as a company, we work, you know, I work with primarily athletes and high level athletes. And I think as a company overall, we're, we're a good home for that population, but we work with a ton of different people as well. We work with people that want to lean out, get healthier. Um, and so a diverse audience. And so it's great. We get to experience sort of, you know, the best of all the world. Um, but across those groups, you know, are there situations where we, where we don't, you know, track macros or we don't, you know, um, we don't apply that level of focus to nutrition, but still try to get people results. So the answer is absolutely. Um, you know, there are some athletes that realistically should not track, you know, if they have a, a, a rough history with food um, and can become obsessive with it, then asking them to weigh and measure every aspect of their diet uh, could potentially be a recipe for disaster. You know, um, sometimes it's not though. Sometimes 
it actually allows for people to kind of have a calming effect to say, okay, I know what I'm putting into my body. Um, but regardless of that, you know, there are so many different aspects of that we can influence as a quote nutrition coach um, that are going to impact body composition. They're going to impact performance. So as an example, you know, getting somebody to sleep into alignment. So simply sort of saying, when are you going to bed? When are you waking up? How many times are you waking up in the middle of the night? And then trying to optimize things around that lifestyle change can, can make huge differences. Um, hydration, right? So that's another one, you know, getting people to recognize that they're probably not drinking enough water day in and day out. And that that's going to have a, a, a dramatic impact on their hunger levels, their metabolism, their performance in the gym as well. So there's all these different aspects of life that we can try to optimize for our clients um, that have nothing to do with tracking their diet. You know, when I give nutrition seminars, I tell people that like, Hey, you know, you could listen to nothing else, but if you, if you hear me say that, you know, you need to get eight hours of sleep per night and you make that a priority, you're going to feel tremendously better. You're going to lean out. You're going to get better performance in the gym. And, you know, from that simple one, one adjustment to your life, you can have profound results. So those are just a couple of examples of how we, how we do work with athletes in a system that has nothing to do with tracking macros. And in your onboarding of new clients, do you guys look to perhaps arrive at these uh, potential roadblocks or uh, nuance in personality based on a, a thorough intake form? What, what does that process look like in the very beginning? Say I was coming to you, um, what would that look like for, just for our audience to get a better sense? Yeah, absolutely. So once you decide that you want to work with us, um, regardless of which of the programs that we offer you sign up for, you know, we have a, a pretty thorough intake form that's going to ask a significant number of questions. So, of course, things like age, height, weight, um, sex, you know, but then we're going to dive pretty deep into your training history. We're going to figure out, you know, how much are you doing on a day to day and a week to week basis? What do your rest days look like? Um, you know, what are you doing for a day job? What time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Uh, how many times do you wake up in the middle of the night? Um, for women, we ask a lot of questions about menstrual cycle to see whether or not it's normal, whether or not it's heavy, whether it's disappeared completely, if they're on birth control. Uh, we ask medical history, uh, supplemental history. Um, you know, what kind of stress do you have in your life? Um, and then we have this sort of like open-ended question, which basically says, is there anything else that you want to tell us about? And a lot of people leave it blank, but sometimes you get these like just gold mines of stories in there of people saying, you know, uh, talking about their, their history with food and sort of their, you know, struggles with, um, with, uh, you know, having a fear of carbohydrates like we've already talked about, you know, or uh, something along those lines that makes it a com completely impactful difference in how I would program for that person. You know, um, the reality is that's just the beginning though. Right. So once we've brought that client on board, we've analyzed that form, we've generated a nutritional plan for them. You know, we're going to, we're going to talk with that client or we're going to interact with them, you know, a significant amount. Um, we probably do more check-ins on a week to week basis than any other company out there. Um, at least three times per week, we'll, we'll have an interaction with our client where we've already sort of paid attention to their food and gone in and sort of said like, Hey, good job, you know, or what's going on. seems like you're struggling a little bit. Like, how are you like, talk to me about what's going on. Um, and it's through those interactions that you really start to get to know people. You know, um, a lot of clients say they have this like uncanny sense to know when something's off with them. And it's, it's only because I interact with them so frequently, you know, uh, I could be talking to say, you know, Natalie and because I talked to her, you know, for every other day for, you know, two months when all of a sudden I ask her, say, how are you doing? And she goes, I'm okay. 
instead of thinking like, oh, she's fine. Like, I know that that's deviated from her normal pattern. I can be like, well, hold on a second. Like something's up, talk to me. Um, and that's something that you can really only get by interacting with people a lot, I think. So you don't just do the, the once a week macro adjustments? No, not really. You know, <laughs> I used to do that back in the day. Um, I didn't really get great results from it. You know, there was always the dedicated people that would do really, really well. Yeah. But a lot of people struggled. And, you know, with things like, you know, uh, Google's like shared Google documents, you can start to figure out why, you know, so we're doing a check in on, we'll say Friday afternoon, and it's Wednesday, and there's only like a little bit of information in there. And then magically, by Friday morning, everything's been populated, you know, Um, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And so, you know, that all switched. Um, For me, I started working with uh, Mackenzie Riley, uh, probably geez, like, going on three years ago now, um, maybe, maybe four, three or four years. And, um, she and I, she would just text me like all the time, like how she was doing, Hey, you know, do it feeling good in the gym? Uh, what should I do about my macro? Should I adjust anything? You know? And so we started to like build this rapport and I started to get to know her better, you know, learn about her life. Uh, you know, I learned her dog's name, you know, all about her husband, what he did for a living, you know? Um, and so when things started to go sideways and she got stressed, it was easy to kind of tell. And so, you know, she started to see good progress, you know, great performance increases, uh, body composition changes and things of that nature. And so I started to apply that same metric with some of the other athletes that I was working with. Um, and sure enough, like better results, better connection with clients, you know, for me as a business owner, better retention rates. Um, and I said, I had this kind of aha moment of like, okay, you know, we need to, we need to talk to our people more. And so figuring out a strategy and a structure to make that work has been something that I've been, you know, uh, working hard at. Um, I think we're, we're getting close to where I want it to be, but I'm, I'm never fully satisfied. Yeah, I, I actually have here uh, a study. It's about people who were able to maintain the weight that they um, had lost and those who relapsed. It says here that of the people who maintained the weight that they or, or basically who were successful in their weight loss, um, that 90% of them exercise regularly, 90% were conscious of their support, or 90% were conscious of their behaviors, 70% used available social support. And the major takeaway here, if you maybe I lost you on those numbers, is that of the relapsers, 40% used social support. So it sounds like, and I think this is where the macronutrient boom became so exciting for overnight entrepreneurs was because you have these three numbers that could potentially, if people are adhering to them and are machine-like, they could reach hundreds of clients all at once. It's much more quantity. It's, it's, you can reach, you can reach so many people, but you, you see that it might not be as, as, uh, um, successful, as successful based on these things like, understanding how many how often they're exercising uh if they're aware of what behaviors they have around exercise or if they have these social support groups so what at what point were you perhaps willing and, and maybe there were perhaps there were because we we don't write templates uh there are some there are obviously foundational aspects to clients programs that will resemble one another because there are foundational exactly training principles just as their foundational nutritional principles um at what point did you maybe take that risk and say we were are going to cut down on the number of clients that we could potentially work with at a single time 
but instead try for better success and maybe that even meant higher price points for a better service. Was that, was that uh, a time that you recall or those questions that were asked? Yeah, um, there was absolutely a question that was asked for sure. Um, thinking about sort of what did we want the future of M2 to look like? You know, um, for a long time, really, honestly, for most of the, you know, the time that I've been doing this, it was really just me, you know, it was a sort of a side job and something that I enjoyed. Um, but then, you know, thanks to working with really great clients that had high profiles, things started to grow um, beyond my ability to kind of do things on my own. And, you know, I remember having this conversation with somebody of basically being like, well, what do you want this company to be? You know, do you want it to be um, something where a coach has a hundred clients, you know, and like if you put this price point with this sort of percentage, like this is the type of money that you can make. And I thought to myself, like, you know, that's, that's absolutely not what I want. Um, you know, I want to continue to influence people's lives. I want to be able to have connections with people. Um, I didn't want to give up nutrition coaching myself. You know, I love working with clients day in and day out. Um, and, you know, honestly, I've just, I've seen a lot of companies go down that road, whether it's nutrition coaching or other aspects where, you know, um, they try to kind of mass produce what they've started from and they, they lose something about it. You know, um, we have people that come from us from other very successful companies that tr generate tremendous results saying, you know, yeah, uh, it was good, but like the, like I lost the personal aspect of what, of what I wanted, what I was looking for in a nutrition coach. Um, and that's something I just don't want to compromise on, you know? Um, so we'll, we'll continue to kind of do our, our model. Um, it's definitely inefficient compared to sort of the, the other aspects that you can do out there. You know, um, people have asked me, why don't you just generate a template where people can kind of answer questions and it spits them out numbers. Um, yeah, what nothing to do with that, right? So like we have what we call our option one or our tier one plan where basically people kind of get a nutrition plan to run on their own. Um, every single one of those is generated by hand. So we have our formula that we'll use to generate the, the you know, initial macros, but then there's an art or a subtlety that goes into modifying that. So changing the numbers based upon, you know, how much, um, you know, how much they're, we think they're doing in their day job or their age or some stress parameter that's going on. Or realistically, sometimes telling people like, hey, you know, I know you want to lean out, but you've been working out for two hours a day, uh, six days a week, you're eating 1300 calories. Realistically, this is not going to happen for you in a short period of time. And here's why. And giving them an education of like why your goal needs to be backburnered until you physically are capable of generating the process of leaning out. Um, you know, that's a hard conversation to have that you could never generate through a template, right? Yeah. So we just, we won't compromise on that ever. Okay. And, and yeah, and that's very much uh, where we stand. So I, I, I it, it's cool to hear that, um, how there might be uh, a certain way of scaling it, but you know, that doesn't mean that that doesn't have its uh, uh, drawbacks or, or perhaps low uh, retention rates. It, it's just something that I think Absolutely. from an accountability standpoint, people with diet, whether it's in their own family in terms of the food that's prepared around them or the actual coach involved, is, is that accountability is huge. I think at this point, maybe if we can have uh, a, a general um, and this might just be kind of putting together pieces that we've already discussed because people are probably listening and they, they want to just start their, 
their diet. I think most people are looking to perhaps lean out. And in fact, I know much more people are looking to lean out than they are looking to mass. Um, but they're looking for like those quick macros. And I think it's still good for people to be aware. You had mentioned um, with protein, uh, just a, a gram per pound of protein. And you had uh, alluded to how carbohydrates are perhaps uh, going to be influenced by someone's activity levels. Are there um, certain baselines that our, our viewers can take in terms of the carbs and perhaps the remaining fats to maybe begin working on this their own? And, and if this weren't to work, they would perhaps know then who could help them out a bit more. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, what I would say is that, so your average CrossFitter, so I don't know what your, like how many days a week or, you know, hours a day, your average audience member is training, but like most people that we interact with, um, come to us training five days a week for, you know, roughly an hour a day, we would consider your average CrossFit class. Um, and so in that situation, you know, what I would generally tell people not to do math on your, on your podcast here, but is to take your, to take your body weight, um, and, or your desired body weight, I should say, and multiply that by somewhere between like a 12 and a 14, you know? So if you're brand new to CrossFit or you're a little bit older, um, you know, maybe use a 12. And if you're an experienced CrossFit, you know, person that's in their late twenties, early thirties, and has maybe a more demanding job, that would be more like a, a, a 14, multiply those two numbers together. So, you know, we're to take my body weight, let's say 185 pounds, you know, I've been doing CrossFit for a, a decade now. So, you know, multiply times 14 for me. That's a good place to start your total calories. You know, um, from there, you want to take, you know, roughly one gram of uh, protein for a pound of desired body weight. So if I'm 185 pounds and I want to continue to be 185 pounds, I would use 185 grams of protein. Um, fat generally falls somewhere in like 25 to 30% as being a comfort zone for most people. And then the rest of it's just carbohydrates. So it does take a little bit of math and a little bit of sort of figuring out to figure, you know, to kind of generate those numbers. But it, you know, it ends up being something like, you know, 30% protein, 25% fat, 45% carbs, something in that range for a lot of people as a place to just generally start. And then there's a ton of different factors that have to be taken into account on top of that to figure out if those needs to be adjusted. You know, are you trying to gain weight? Are you trying to lose a significant amount of weight? You know, are you doing a lot of movement out of the uh, gym? Um, how much are you sleeping per night? You know, what does your nutritional history look like? Have you been on a diet for the last 10 years? Or is this, you know, the first time that you've paid attention to food intake in your entire life? Um, all of those things need to be taken into consideration when really fine tuning the numbers from that, from that initial point outward. Um, but, you know, everyone has to start somewhere. I, I was going to ask, you know, with, and this may be a hard answer with all the different factors you just listed there, but when someone's maybe choosing, uh, a goal, uh, and maybe the correct goal with, you know, you mentioned earlier, someone might be on 1300 calories and, or they've been dieting for almost their whole life. And if they try to go even lower, they're not even in the right position to actually get those results. They actually need to spend some time at higher calories or maintenance and higher than they've ever been. So when you're looking at someone's diet, how would you maybe, uh, assess what goal they should do? Cause it could even be that someone actually needs to add more muscle to have the look they want. And before they lean out, they need to actually get a little bit bigger, which can be a hard, mentally can be very hard. So how, uh, how would you maybe assess where someone's goal should actually be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the biggest thing, like you said yourself, is going to be their, like their nutritional and their training history, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
So the most common example that we come across is somebody who's tried to lose weight for a long period of time. They've been at like a steep deficit. And what typically happens in that situation is they see some initial results, things start to plateau, and then they start to see reversal. So the weight, the weight starts to come back on. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's say they were, you know, they were normally eating at uh, 2000 calories and they were pushed down to 15 or 1400 calories per day to generate that weight loss. And now they're still at 1400 calories, but all the weights come back. And so the natural reaction is to push the calories even lower, mm -hmm. something like 1100 or 1200 calories. Um, I've seen things as low as 900 calories for, for people, which is just insane. Um, so in that situation, you have to kind of have the, the talk of like, well, listen, like the reason why, you know, the reason why you're seeing the, the lack of progress or sort of the reversal is because your body has adapted and it's slowed down its metabolism and it's slowed down all of the things that, you know, contributed to your weight loss in the first point. So you may no longer be in that calorie deficit, but by going lower, you're putting yourself into a pretty stressed out state. So at that point, your body is going to have a determination to make, you know, do it, does it want to break down muscle, which is really a luxury, right? Like having muscle mass is a luxury, um, or does it want to break down body fat? And so if it's in a healthy spot, it'll break down body fat and you'll get leaner over time. But if you're in an unhealthy stress state, it'll prioritize the breakdown of the muscle mass to convert it into carbohydrates to use as fuel, fuel to keep you alive. Um, so that's just one example where we have to kind of like use that, that feedback to say, hey, you know, like realistically, the best thing for you to do is probably to bring your calories up closer to, you know, sort of where we think you should be, restore your metabolic health, get your thyroid functioning appropriately, remove any, you know, um, undue stress on your adrenal glands and things of that nature. Um, and then once we sort of put you in that, that good situation, we can then approach cutting again, losing weight in a more sustainable approach where we don't just leave you in a calorie deficit, but we have periods where we diet periods where, excuse me, periods where you're in a calorie, you know, um, a pretty reasonable calorie deficit and periods where you're at maintenance to sort of try and generate a long-term successful program. That's just one example. Yeah. So I, I, I one thing you said, it, it was interesting to me because I, there are, there are some instances where uh, I, I have witnessed in others the low diets perhaps not being successful just because it's not sustainable. So they, they would right. back to older behaviors. But I, in terms of the uh, this catabolism of, of protein, uh, I, I, I believe I had, I had learned in school, and it, it has been some time, and I, I should be up on this with, with just my own continued ed, but if I'm not mistaken, the body will use protein in extreme, extreme, extreme cases of endurance endeavors or basically starvation, are you saying that some of these calorie uh, um, recommendations are leading people to a level of starvation where they would start to basically just eat, cannibalize themselves? So, I mean, I think it's important to kind of take it in context, right? So like in a big picture, 24 seven, no. And but are, are people doing that to themselves in some situations? Yes. So like, you know, I, I've had people come to me that have been six weeks at 850 calories per day, yeah. you know, and they're training for an hour to an hour and a half per day. They're lightheaded, um, getting blurred vision, you know, uh, can't make it through the night with like, you know, sleeping, they're always waking up. Um, it's safe to say that in a situation that they're probably prioritizing their breakdown of muscle mass. Um, you know, the U S government, I can't remember which agency has said something like, you know, anything below 900 calorie, you know, deficit for your average, 
uh, American is considered like putting yourself close to a starvation state. Gotcha. Um, exercising intensely on top of that <laughs> would make it worse. Um, that's not necessarily happening with everybody, though. What we are talking about is, you know, putting yourself into a, a reasonably large calorie deficit and then applying a significant stress on top of that, like CrossFit, mm -hmm. right? So I would say CrossFit is uniquely positioned as probably one of the more stressful things that you can do to yourself in the gym or in life. You know, you walk into the gym, um, it's possible that you're going to go close to red line for what, anywhere from three to 20 minutes, um, you know, the longer time domain, obviously you're not going to get red line the whole time. Um, but it generates a pretty substantial stress response, you know? And so the body, the body senses all stress, whether it's emotional stress, um, physical stress, uh, things of that nature by producing the hormone cortisol, you know, and cortisol is a hormone that we need to live. And it does a lot of really, you know, necessary functions, but when it's maintained at a very, you know, elevated level for longer than it's supposed to, it will contribute to muscle breakdown, you know? Um, it's one of the functions of the hormone is to, to, to break down, you know, protein in your muscle and convert it into carbohydrates over time. So it's a way more complicated process than I have time to get into now. But, um, it, you know, we see this happening. It does make sense. And, and, and you can just even based on, on, on the symptoms that this person would be reporting, you know that something good is not happening. Something, something that could be lasting will just not occur. Um, and, and rewinding just a bit, because we see this with, uh, I think, performance plateaus, and they're mm -hmm. actually uh, linked to, in, in, in recent literature to increased risk of injury, is the rate at which people progress or return back to training after time off that the steeper the slope the greater the risk uh, of injury and while you may get those those gains fast it's just not going to be sustainable over a long period of time so now that people know using kind of that analogy like you don't want to come out of the gates too fast and and put yourself in this um uh hole with your performance well it sounds like as you just mentioned, you could do that similarly with your nutrition and end up in, in a starved state, especially, well, namely for weight loss. How would you go about recommending, because people now know where they can start with their macronutrients, what realistic and measurable progress might look like? Uh, let's just say someone wants fat loss. They're not looking for it to be aggressive. They just want to be successful. What is that rate of calorie deficit looking like? And perhaps if you want to just talk a little bit, Mike, about the importance of being in a deficit for fat loss and, and, and calorie balance overall, I think there are a lot of like people right. who are still saying, well, but my hormones and, but my, this, where it's like, no, you kind of have to accept that there's this foundational thing that is a barrier to entry. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's important to think about, so let's just try to break that down a little bit. Um, do you need to be in a deficit to generate fat loss? Yes and no, right? So you could, um, you could be 185 pounds and over the course of a year, stay 185 pounds, but completely change your body composition, right? You know, in that situation, you've probably not generated um, a significant um, calorie deficit. What you've done 
is, you know, over time, build muscle mass through appropriately appropriate fueling, probably generate a higher metabolism as a result of having more muscle. And over time, this is going to use fuel, specifically fat as a fuel source, and you'll generate a leaner physique. Now, if you're looking to lose weight, though, and you want to, um, you know, lose body fat, then yes, of course, you're like almost necessarily going to have to be putting yourself into a calorie deficit. How to do this appropriately is a really great question. You know, um, I think for a long period of times, people just sort of said, like, you've got to figure out your total daily uh, energy expenditure, and then you've got to put yourself into a deficit from there. And over time, as your body adapts, you'll have to continually make changes um, to that that number. So if you start at 2,000 calorie, you know, daily expenditure, you might want to be at 700, 1,700 calorie intake. But of course, over time, your body may adapt. So next, you know, two months in, you may need to go to 1,600 or 1,500. What we've learned recently, really, is that taking yourself out of calorie deficits can generate better progress. So there was this really interesting study that was published, I believe, in 2018 called the Matador Study. Um, has nothing to do with bullfighting, um, where basically people, they took obese men and they either put them on traditional diets where they just kind of tried to maintain them in a calorie deficit for the entire study, um, or they alternated. Every two weeks, they would alternate between being in uh, calories or macros that were generated to gener- or that were designed to put them in a pretty steep deficit, something along the lines of 25%, I think. And then every other two weeks, they would be put at calories that were designed to be maintenance, to not, to not generate weight loss. And so they ran these two different groups head to head for a long period of time. And they found that the people that did what they call intermittent energy restriction, so again, has nothing to do with intermittent fasting, uh, intermittent energy restriction had significantly better weight loss compared to the people that were just traditionally dieting. And so... This most likely has to do with maintenance of thyroid health, with increased leptin levels, which is another hormone that controls hunger, but also controls metabolism in a pretty big way. Um, And so that's just one example where, you know, using physiology and, you know, understanding how the body works, you can generate better results than just sort of saying, we're going to take the basic approach of constantly trying to uh, correct for your body's decreasing metabolism as we put you deeper and deeper and deeper into a, a diet. So does that help to answer your question there? It does. So it sounds like maybe a um, a starting point could be based on the numbers you put out, this uh, 250 to 300 starting point. Maybe that's like a little on the, on the kind of conservative side. Uh, yeah. And if that's not working, maybe drop it a bit further if the body needs a little bit more of a nudge or if that initially does work and it stops, uh, perhaps uh, we, we were both shaking our heads at each other. We both... Uh, saw the review on that in, in a, a recent uh, 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 re- research review uh, and, and just speaking to how these quote-unquote diet breaks or maintenance periods can can be very, very helpful, not just physiologically, but also psychologically. Yeah. You know, I think this is an idea that people had for a long time where we, you know, nutritionists knew that like, hey, if, if your client stalls on progress, the best thing you can do is actually ask them to exercise a little bit less and to eat a little bit more period of, for a period of time and then put them back into that old routine, you know, with some, with some minor changes to it. And so what this group did was really just kind of take a philosophy that was being used by nutrition coaches and actually run the study to show it being done the right way. And the results are pretty remarkable. So I, it was really impressive for me. And when you write out these numbers for people, they're obviously evolving. 
based on their goals. They are a, uh, they're evolving based on the rate of progress that someone is or is not making. Do you usually recommend, um, because at least for the nutrition companies out there who are that we follow and, and uh, are, are very evidence-based, we've heard one thing and then it's evolved into another, and that is that do people eat for recovery purposes the same uh, macronutrients on a certain like uh, block, let's say, of a, a nutrition training plan, if I could say it like that? Do they eat the same macronutrients each day or does that vary based on their activity levels? Yeah. So I would say every company has a different take on that, whether or not you should change your macros on a day-to-day basis based upon your activity levels. And it probably has to do with um, the client. So for us, like what we try to do is capture the amount of exercise that you're doing across a week, you know, and then we build our macros to support that. So for us, we don't have our, our clients decrease their macros on a rest day. There are other companies out there that dramatically, like dramatically decrease the macros on a rest day. Um, you know, I think, again, everyone's different, right? And so, you know, this is something that I believe deep in my soul is that, you know, we're all unique little snowflakes and we can't treat everybody the same way. So are there clients where I decrease their macros on a on a rest day? There are, absolutely, you know. Um, are there clients that I ask to eat more on rest days? There absolutely are, you know. Um, are there some clients that we work with that have, you know, a relatively standard amount of exercise Monday through Friday? And then on Saturday, they go like for a really long run or bike ride. Yes. So in that situation, we will, we will change our plans and use, you know, different, different numbers um, to fit that situation. But most of our clients, you know, what we, what we prescribe to is like, let's just get some consistency going on here because it allows for the easiest evaluation moving forward. You know, if I'm working with one of you guys and, you know, Monday you're at 2000 calories and on Tuesday and Wednesday you're at 3,200. And then on Thursday you're down at 24 and then Friday you're at, you know, 3,200 again. And then Saturday and Sunday you're at 4,000. Like it's hard for me to kind of keep track of like how much you're actually eating on a day-to-day basis. So if we have to make an adjustment, I'm like, well, you know, shit, do I change all the days or do I just change his high cal or do I change his rest days? You know, for me, it's almost like in most situations, the, the keep it simple, stupid rule applies here. You know, don't get overly fancy, generate a basic nutrition plan, figure out what you need to change to dial that person in. And then you're 95% of the way there. And then the other, the other 5% might have to do with, you know, okay, how can we optimize our rest days? Or maybe it has nothing to do with nutrition at all. Maybe it has to do with their sleep routine, you know? So that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. And I, perhaps like people who uh, are dabbling with this, who are completely sedentary outside of like three hours a, a week of exercise, right? That that might make sense uh, if if they're not regularly active. Exactly. Uh, like the person who has a, bike, a very long bike ride or a long endurance endeavor on a yeah, Saturday. Or, or as an example, another group that will try to change macros on is if they're not doing more than like three to four days a week of training, right? Yeah. So if somebody's doing three days of training and four days of just kind of like living life, in that situation, I'll give them, you know, a macros for the day that they train and then macros for the rest day. So that's just one more situation, which you were kind of getting at there yourself. Exactly. And then perhaps that athlete who you were describing is maybe just on their rest day, it stays the same. They might need that extra energy because they are training so frequently to, to be able to bounce back. Like your best yeah. 
So like when we increase macros on a client's rest day, it's because we're, we're like desperately trying to top off their glycogen stores, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, we're trying to send a signal to the body that, hey, food is plentiful here. You know, you can, you can take the regulator off of this person and you can let them go full bore tomorrow when they're back in the gym. Um, so that's the reason why we might like give people more food on a rest day than we do on a training day even. And I think that's where we've, because we have had probably the whole uh, host of Renaissance periodization science consultants on the podcast and have, have been tuned into what they've been doing for a long time. I remember in the beginning, and we've personally enjoyed how, how they've been outspoken about what they've changed and why. But in the beginning, we used to drop calories on a deload and, and mm -hmm. drop calories on a rest day, but we were training six days a week and we're like, something's just not really feeling so great about this. And then, you know, that in their own experiential work too, they, they have made the changes you described and, and we and just in, in following them have, have uh, reaped those benefits as well. So that there is this, uh, um, again, further uh, evidence to why just the numbers alone might not be best, how there's a greater story going on. Yeah. Uh, speaking on a little bit more, and this is just where uh, I guess this is speaking to individual differences, and it's a situation that I haven't best been able to advise. I'm uh, not confident in my ability to do so because this is not my profession that is like nutritional coaching but it seems that there are populations of people who i wouldn't say are geriatric and that they're 65 plus but perhaps maybe uh, late 40s and 50s uh, whether it's women who are dealing with menopause or, or men of that similar age group uh, who seem to maybe plug the numbers right they've got their exercise down and things still seem a little bit shaken up. Um, is this something that you've experienced? Is it something that uh, you have any thoughts on or any experience with? So when you say shaken up, what do you mean? Help me out there. Meaning like um, it, you look at what they're doing and you, your only thought is there, there has to be inaccurate tracking for their results to not be going the way that we'd want. Right kind of see them in the, in the, you know that they're exercising, you know what they're eating, but then the numbers just don't seem to be changing. Yeah. Had those, I guess this might even speak more broadly to what happens when as much as you can account for is plugged and played and it's not producing the results you're looking for. Are there other uh, psychological a uh, uh, avenues that you look to explore? Um, other recovery avenues that you look to explore? Yeah. So, um, when people are seemingly doing the right things and not seeing progress with their nutrition, the, the first place I'll always go 100% of their time is their sleep habits. Um, inadequate sleep is a huge issue. And so like typically the, you know, someone that's in their 40 to 50s, you know, we'll say, we'll say that range that the 40 year old population, you know, working uh, full-time jobs, um, probably taking care of children. Uh, a lot more life and responsibilities going on there. And sometimes sleep can take a major back burner. And so one of the questions that we ask on our intake form is, you know, how much sleep are you getting? What time are you going to bed? And things of that nature. Um, so interesting study, very small group of people, not a, not a large number, but they, they took two groups of men. They put them on uh, calorie restricted diets. So, you know, all controlled. So everybody was basically eating the same, the same amount. Um, and they had one group sleep, I think it was eight and a half hours per night. And I think the other group, 
I want to, I want to say it was five and a half hours per night. And so the eight and a half uh, hour per group night lost weight, maintained muscle mass, and generally had a leaner composition at the end of the study. The group that was on the same dietary routine, but only allowed to sleep for five and a half hours per night, uh, didn't lose uh, any body fat whatsoever. Their body weight in general didn't change nearly as dramatically as the other group. But what they did do was lose muscle mass. Um, so their body broke down protein, most likely converted it into you know, glucose, into to carbohydrate. Um, and then because they were, were not sleeping enough, they were most likely insulin resistant to some extent. And it probably ended up being stored as body fat. Um, so that's just one example where sleep can be, you know, an overriding issue. So if somebody's not making progress, like that's the first place that we're always going to look is we're going to check out their sleep. You know, from there, we're going to just try to dial in um, to see if there's any other stress going on in their life. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, I'll have clients that are cruising along, making good progress, and then something changes. You know, um, their mom gets sick or there's, you know, financial stress that they're not, you know, prepared for. And even though they're doing the exact same thing with their diet, progress stops, you know, and it starts to head in the wrong direction. And, you know, it's my job as a nutrition coach to help them at least try to process that so we can get moving back in the right direction. So I would say sleep and stress are the two things that we, we see hijack progress the most frequently. Gotcha. And, and it uh, seems to be the same for training too. Um, you know, I think that with any type of program, whether it's nutrition coaching or with training, it's so important to understand perhaps, you know, what, what is optimal, but then also understand what's practical for your lifestyle and, and for really, Completely. you know, I think, and you know, one thing that I was just thinking about when you started to go, go down that road was, you know, we have, we have these clients that are not necessarily in that age group, but people that are doing everything right and they're not making progress. And, you know, typically they're women. Um, and what we found is that oftentimes, and this hurts me to say, cause like, I love, I love CrossFit and I love the training modality, but oftentimes getting them out of the gym and out of that, that CrossFit stress routine allows them to make progress. So moving them towards more of like a, a bodybuilding style approach um, with some low intensity, steady state cardio on the side, or even just getting them to go out and do things outside and not worry about going into the gym allows them to make progress. You know, we had, we have a number of clients where we've seen that happen now. And it's not to say that the, the training modality is bad or flawed. It's just, I think that there's, you know, you have to take everybody's individual situation into account. And if you removed the stress of the nutritional component and the sleep is in alignment and they're eating a micronutrient dense pile of foods and they're not seeing progress, well, you know, the only other stress that they're having in their life is this hour, hour long class where they, they leave feeling like they've been beaten, you know, with a stick and like are in a fog at the end of it. And the body, the body's responding to that by holding on to weight, you know? And so that's just one other area where we, you know, it's a really hard conversation to have. People get addicted to that endorphin rush. They generally don't like when we tell them, Hey, you know, we might have to talk about how you're exercising. Oh Yeah. And it's to just get progress performance too, because you know you, the way you're, that your CrossFit Games athletes train is not one hour of high intensity every day. Their their intensities fluctuate. They do the long, slow. They do the bodybuilding. So, you know, and when we had um, we had Dr. Gabriel Fundaro, who had, um, uh, has um, 
spent a lot of her uh, professional career looking at the gut biome and just seeing that it that doesn't respond well to intensive stress over a long period of time and how really crossfit in its origins was not high no. every day so that maybe no, i was just thinking the exact same thing while you guys were saying that you know like when i started crossfit back in 2008 like you know for every day that there was you know helen um there was another day that was just you know six sets of five back squats you know and you know or something along those lines and things have really evolved now you know where what i was doing for regionals training in 2010 which was you know a strength gymnastics and then a conditioning piece for two hours or an hour a day now looks an awful lot like your average crossfit class right like people come in they do strength and then there's you know uh warming up for the conditioning piece and maybe some sort of accessory work to finish it and like it's dramatically changed from how it looked at the start when you know the zone diet was sort of the initial prescription yeah, so uh, definitely a lot of considerations to have with you know what what works for people's training histories and, and, and perhaps <clears throat> nutritional preferences and and also if there have been any psychological uh, challenges therein. Uh, there's also considerations of um, uh, just adherence and uh, having a, a support group, and it. Just, means that if you do want to be successful in the long term with your nutrition, though it might be tempting to play the numbers game yourself. Uh, and again, it's not like, this, as I was saying before, I think people look for like optimal where they want to perhaps look like a certain person uh, and finding out what might be best for their schedule and, and what's most practical for their schedule, but still really enjoy what those results are. That's the real benefit of having a coach is is taking their wants analysis and creating a good needs analysis based on what what they can put into it um so mike if people want to uh look into your services further uh, how can they find you uh where, where are we going to send them yeah great question so uh the best place to contact us is through the website so it's uh, m2performancenutrition.com uh, there's all the different things that we offer on there. Uh, if you want to learn more about sort of our general philosophies, the blog is a good place to go. Um, we have all of the different programs that we offer, you know, one-on-one -on -one coaching down to, you know, one-time nutrition plans and everything in between. Um, and then if you're looking for more sort of philosophies and sort of what we do and the, the clients that we work with, um, you can just head on over to our Instagram page and we we're happy to brag about those guys all day long since uh, they're the ones making us look good. Well, that's, that's awesome. Uh, Kyle, do you have any other? Uh... I just want to say thanks for coming on, Mike. That was really, really good uh, show. Yeah, hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. You're great questions, to say the least. It's it's good to know that because you know we want to make sure that our our, our athletes are not receiving. And if if someone's going to provide conflicting evidence, we're not going to shoot them down. We're we're going to try to meet them where they are. But if if our athletes are are going to people uh, who are applying similar uh, kind of uh, psychosocial uh, uh, considerations to their training and, and, and doing it in a sustainable way or sorry to their nutrition. It just all sinks. Like at least for, for Natalie, as we've mentioned her, one of our CrossFit CrossFitters, it's, it's everything jives, you know, it's, it's a really great thing. So um, not saying everyone has to go out and hire a nutrition coach and a, uh, uh, a training coach, but just know the two are linked together and that maybe based on what you're looking for, you could find a, a fit uh, for you. Well, thanks so much again, guys. Hope you enjoyed episode 37 and we'll see you next week.